This is the season of graduations. And those parents who have their children going off to college or leaving home to pursue a career, you're probably concerned to make sure that you've told them everything about what to expect in life. And that involves telling them some realities that aren't all that comfortable. That things won't always go their way. That even if they work hard, sometimes they might not be successful at first. And a whole myriad of things that we want to tell our children about the reality of living in this fallen world. Well, Paul is doing the same thing for Timothy, preparing him for the reality of living in a fallen world and ministering as a pastor in his church at at Ephesus. He's trying to convey to him what Jesus conveyed to us in John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We've been in the study of 2 Timothy, and he's giving his disciple encouragement. He's writing from a prison cell, awaiting his own execution. But he's giving him a realistic view of the world and the church. Life and ministry is not a cakewalk. It's not a bed of roses. Timothy was experiencing hardship and opposition to his ministry and the ministry of the gospel. And Paul is not saying, hey, Timothy, just be happy. Things will get better. Don't worry about it. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, Timothy, this is the reality. You are in a spiritual battle. But you can be hopeful. You can be strong. You can persevere through the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the end of chapter 2 in 2 Timothy where Paul was giving another metaphor of what it means to serve the Lord in this fallen world and the kind of commitment that is involved. He says that there are vessels in God's great house. Some vessels are for honorable use and some vessels are for dishonorable use. And what distinguishes those vessels of honorable use from dishonorable use is that vessels who are the believers in the church will seek to be pure, will seek to purify themselves. They will flee youthful passions. They will pursue righteousness, faith, and love and peace along with other believers. They will seek to emulate the character of Christ. And then as we begin chapter 3 today, we see Paul now wants Timothy and all believers to have a realistic view of life and ministry, what it will be like until Christ returns. And so follow along with me as I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, 
swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Thus far the reading of God's word. Paul begins with this emphatic command, but understand this. The word really is, know this. Right after he describes that there will be both vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use in God's great house here on earth, and after he says, but God may grant some of them repentance leading to a knowledge of the faith, he tells Timothy, God may grant repentance to some, but it's also clear that the opposition will continue. And so he wants to communicate what Timothy is experiencing right now is not unusual. He says he needs to understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now what does Paul mean by last days? You know, it's a misconception that a lot of Christians have that the biblical last days are the final days right before Jesus comes or the final weeks or or months or even the, the couple years before he comes. But this is not what the scriptures tell us this term means. Last days refers to the days between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. You see, when he tells Timothy, this is what you are to expect from people, he's not saying, this is what you're supposed to expect way, way in the future, Timothy, right before the coming of Christ. No, he's telling Timothy what he should expect right now because Right at that time, he's in the last days. And we are in the last days as well. And Paul wants to help Timothy put his difficulties into the context of what characterizes these last days. He should not be surprised that there will be opposition in the church. Opposition from false teachers. These are the perils and troubles that beset us as a church, if we seek to preach the truth and live the truth of the gospel. But what also seems to be communicated here is that there will be heightened times of difficulty in these last days. And so what follows next in verses 2 through the first part of verse 5 is Paul showing the character of false teachers in times of difficulty. He says, for people... And then he gives these lists of characteristics. Now, what people is he talking about? Well, the context of this letter is false teachers, those who profess faith in Christ but are not true believers, who have infiltrated the church with error and with sin. And then we have this section of 18 or 19 characteristics of these people. And if you recall, 
in our scripture reading this morning from Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31 had similar characteristics describing unregenerate people. And so we're going to look at these characteristics very briefly. We, we notice primarily the first and the last phrases in this list are, are really bookends. We find first lovers of self, and then we find at the end lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And we find four expressions that are compounded with love that suggest that the fundamental mistake or or problem or what's wrong with these people is that their love is misplaced. Their love is misdirected. And this is the primary effect of the fall. This is the problem of mankind. We don't love God. We love ourselves. Instead, the love of God has been replaced with the love of self. We remember what Jesus said as he summarized God's law. When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. When love for God is replaced with love for self, then it inevitably leads to all of these other vices, all of these other characteristics. So now in between these four love expressions come three sections. The first section enlarges upon the results of self-love. First we find the love of money. And that really goes, that really follows self-love because people see money as a means to meeting their selfish desires. But then look at what follows that. Proud, meaning boastful. Arrogant, meaning haughty. Abusive, meaning looking down on others with contempt, speaking evil about them. And then we come to this second section. A lot of theologians believe that these five words are grouped together and seem to refer to family life, the attitudes that children have, that adopt, they adopt towards their parents, disobedient to parents. Now these days in our society, it's almost a given that children are expected to rebel against their parents, and it seems a, matter, a minor, a trivial thing, but it's not a trivial thing to God. It's against the fifth commandment of honoring your father and your mother. But you see what happens when we don't love God and we deny our, the authority of our creator. We also deny or we disdain the authorities that God has placed over us like our parents. And then you see what happens after that. They're ungrateful. Gratitude is replaced with dissatisfaction and entitlement. The word for unholy here can also be translated irreverent, not consecrated to God. Heartless is utterly lacking in compassion and normal affection. Unappeasable means unreconcilable. Those not interested in forgiveness. And then we come to the third section of negative virtues that extend beyond the family to other social relationships. We find slanderous. This is a word from diaboli or diaboloi. 
And when the definite article is added to that word, it refers to the devil himself. And the devil is a slanderer. The devil accuses. And so this refers to being guilty of speaking evil against others. Without self-control means ungovernable. Without strength over our bodily lusts. Brutal means savage, cruel, unmerciful. Not loving good refers to no interest in the welfare of others and loathing even authentic goodness shown to others. And then treacherous is a word that refers to a betrayer or a traitor. This word is actually used to describe Judas in two other places in the New Testament. And then reckless describes the behavior of someone who is thoughtless with their words or with their actions, rash or hasty. Swollen with conceit refers to people who are overly impressed with themselves, with their self-importance. And it refers to an arrogance that makes people resist any kind of instruction. And with that, we come to the end, the other end of the bookend. They're lovers of self or pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that word, hedonai, where we get our word hedonism, they're controlled by their love for pleasure rather than God. So what a devastating critique of these false teachers, these fake professors of Christ who have infiltrated the church. These were descriptions of characteristics of real people that Paul had come in in contact with, that Timothy had come in contact with. And then we get this searing summation of their empty spirituality. Look at verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. You know, after reading all of those negative virtues, we think, well, how in the world could these people appear to be godly? But they appear to be godly because in outward ways, they did spiritual things. They prayed. They were at worship services. They they appeared to be pious individuals. They had become masters at deception. We see this in the Pharisees in Jesus' day when he said of them in Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. What does it mean that they appear godly, but they deny its power? Well, he's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that God exerts on us when He first regenerates us and makes us new creatures in Christ. The power of the transformation of becoming someone who's dead spiritually to someone who's alive to Christ. And he's also talking about the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of Christ. He told Timothy, if you recall, in chapter 1, verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so these people outwardly looked godly, but there was no power. They had not been transformed by the grace of God. They were not being sanctified. Their religion was without genuine holiness, genuine love, and good works. They pretended outwardly 
to be religious. And that brings us to the second point that God wants us to see in our text, the response to false teachers in times of difficulty. Paul gives this command to Timothy, very simply, avoid such people. Now, that seems to contradict what he said at the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, he instructs Timothy and all believers to be kind to those who oppose them, patiently enduring their evil, correcting opponents with gentleness, and hoping that God may give them or grant them repentance and, and lead them to a knowledge of the truth. And of course, Jesus was a friend to sinners, to tax collectors, but he was not so friendly toward the false religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul was saying, avoid, avoid appearing to accept those that you have tried to correct, and they still persist in their hypocrisy as true believers and teachers. Refuse to associate with them and give credibility to their fakery. They present a real danger to the church. These people have been confronted, but they persist in their sin, in their believing that they are believers and teaching their false doctrines. Well, after commanding Timothy to avoid such people, now he goes into describing the devious methods that they use of influencing people and making people their disciples. And so the third point that God wants us to see in our text is the practice of false teachers in times of difficulty. They're sneaky. They're stealthy. They're not passive, but they're on the offensive behind the scenes. Look at what he says in verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. What's he describing here? Well, some of these false teachers would look for ways to get into households. This is what was happening in Ephesus. Now, it certainly is not teaching that all women are weak or that men can't be weak and become deceived by false teachers. Many wise, godly women are strong to resist the false teachings of false prophets. But in this situation, there were some women in their community. And the Greek seems to suggest here that there were prominent ones with large homes who were burdened with the guilt of their sins. They were weak in some way in that perhaps they were not taught sufficiently what the Scriptures teach. They weren't biblically informed. And so they lacked spiritual discernment. And it says they were led astray by their passions. Perhaps that means sexual passions or some other passions that they didn't have control of in their lives, like wanting to feel important or, or appreciated, wanting to belong, wanting to adhere to something novel that other people don't know about, or wanting an easy way to excuse their sins. But they were vulnerable, and so they succumbed to these false teachers. And Paul describes the condition of what happens to the weak when they're hooked in to these false teachers' dogma. Verse 7 says, always learning and never able to arrive at 
a knowledge of the truth. They're, ze- they're zealous for learning, learning the false teacher's dogma, and they think as they learn, they will find more and more fulfillment, but what happens is they just experience more and more disappointment and emptiness because these false teachers are not giving them the truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. And then in verse 8, he gives an Old Testament example of these false teachers and their sneaky ways. He says, just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Jewish tradition and some extra-biblical writings name the magicians that opposed Moses when he went before Pharaoh in Exodus 7. And you'll recall there that he threw down his staff and the staff became a snake to communicate to Pharaoh that he was coming with the authority of God. But then the magicians in Pharaoh's court threw down their staffs and by magic there appeared snakes. But God had the last laugh. He caused his snake to devour the snakes of these magicians. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is that these magicians oppose the authority of God, the authority of God through Moses. They oppose the truth of God's revealed words, just as these false teachers seem to do. They seem to use magic. They seem to counterfeit the power and the authority that the apostles have. But he describes them as having a corrupt mind, utterly rejected and disqualified by God regarding the truth. Well, all of this as you can imagine, could be very discouraging to Timothy and to all believers who are living in the last days. But Paul, at the very end of this section, gives some encouragement. And the final point we see here is the hope of believers in times of difficulty. Look at verse 9. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. When I read that phrase, they will not get far. I was thinking of all the detective shows or uh, you know, movies where the hero comes to those who have been uh, uh, affected by a crime, the, the victim of criminals, and, and they say to these people, the bad guy won't get far, we'll get him. Well, that's what God is saying here. They won't get far with their deception. They'll be found out especially by believers who, who are instructed and, and depend upon God's Word. They will see these men for who they really are. And folly here can be translated stupidity or madness. It will become clear eventually the true nature of these people and their, their teaching. Well, how, how should this apply to our lives? How should these truths affect the way that we think and the way that we live? Let me give you four application points. The first one is, do you have a realistic view of these last days? In other words, don't expect to see the world stay out of the church. Don't expect to see the church unhindered by false teachers. You see, Paul isn't describing what happened then. 
He's describing what's happening now. Throughout the last days, there will be dark days where false teachers will have an influence on the church. Those who are not believers will have an influence on the church. Deception and opposition to the truth is not a passing situation, but a permanent characteristic of the age. And so he's telling Timothy and he's telling all of us, do not expect life and ministry in the church to be easy. It's going to be difficult. People who name the name of Christ but are really false Christians with self-love will sometimes infiltrate the church. You know, I think sometimes as Christians we are guilty of kind of thinking that we're in this bubble. What do they call Peachtree City? The bubble, right? Well, sometimes we think the church is like that. The bubble that, that everything's going to be hunky-dory here. You know, we're, gonna, we're not going to have any problems. If we do have some problems, well then, ooh, maybe I should go to a church that doesn't have problems. Well, good luck with that. Every church has difficulties and problems. We must not be naive. Ephesus had these problems. People who display a bogus godliness without power, a love for self, a love for money, a love for pleasure rather than a love for God. So we need to constantly realize that we're in the middle of spiritual warfare. We need this kind of sobriety when we think about the days that we are living in. But the second application point, we need to ask ourselves these questions. What do you love? Is there power in your godliness? You see, as we examine these virtues, or these negative virtues, we have to examine ourselves as as well. What is the, the greatest desire of our hearts? Is it to love God? Or is it to love self? Do you see evidence of God's power in you? What are we talking about? Well, you see, all of us have come into this world with a dead heart, powerless against sin and the devil. We've inherited a sinful nature in rebellion against God and His commandments. God is perfectly pure and righteous and holy. He demands from all of His image bearers perfect holiness, perfect righteousness according to His commandments. And we fall short, don't we? We can't fulfill His commandments perfectly. Furthermore, God shows himself to be a judge, the judge. He is just. He must punish all active and passive sins against his commandments. And so, apart from his grace, we are without hope. Without hope of being reconciled to God. Without hope of going to heaven. But God. God in his compassion and love determined to provide for us grace, to provide righteousness, and to provide forgiveness of sins. And he did this, of course, by the sending of his son, the second person of the Trinity, who came to this earth and took on human flesh and a human nature, and yet without sin, while remaining God. And he came to be our substitute, to live a perfect life in our place, in order to provide for us his record of righteousness. And he also came to go to the cross. The innocent Lamb of God took on the debt of the sins of his people 
And He received the just judgment for those sins in their place through His suffering, through His bleeding, through His dying. But the good news is on the third day He rose from the dead proving He was God the Messiah. Proving He had victory over sin and death and the devil for us. Proving that what He had come to do was accomplished for His people. And so this is the Gospel. And God, by His grace, changes hearts, regenerates hearts, gives people new natures, causes them to be born again so that their love is for God rather than for self, primarily. And so that they know they're set apart to be holy, to be like Christ. And so they are on this road, this journey of sanctification until they die where they become more and more like Christ. They're being transformed by God's Word, by the means of grace to become more Christ-like. This is the power of the Gospel. This is the power of the Holy Spirit causes us to love God rather than to love ourselves. And that leads us to our third application point. As you read this list, examine your character by this list. You know what haunts me when I read this? I think of what the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation as he recorded the words of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus says to this same Ephesian church 30 years later, yet I, the Lord, hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. That's convicting. That's a warning. How easily we, even as born-again Christians whose hearts love the Lord, how easily we can turn to an idol. We can forget our first love. So we need to examine our hearts and where we see sin, where we see a love for self, love for money, love for pleasure rather than a love for God, confess that to the Lord. And that indeed is evidence that you are a new creature because non-believers would not confess that to the Lord or feel bad about those sins. But believers do because we're new creatures. We have a desire to love God. But compare Compare these virtues to how you live, how you think, what you've done this past week. And if God shows you sin, confess it to the Lord. Be refreshed in the fact that you're forgiven of all your sins. Be refreshed in the fact that you are declared righteous before God because of Christ. And be refreshed that you're in Christ. You're united to Him. And because of that, you will be an overcomer. You do have power in the Holy Spirit to mortify sin and to live according to God's commandments. My final application is don't be discouraged. Christ will protect and build His church. We shouldn't overreact to this news by panicking, by getting down and depressed, by obsessing about these things. No, even though there will be dark periods for the church, when it seems like the devil is winning, God will prevail. His truth will prevail. His church will be built, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. 
And the gospel will prevail. The word of God will prevail. What is Paul trying to convey to Timothy here? That in the midst of this spiritual warfare, he must remain faithful to preaching God's word, to preaching the gospel, to living according to God's word, and believing that God won't allow these vices to prevail, to destroy the church, to destroy Christians. That's why Paul will speak a little bit later on in the third chapter about the authority of the Scriptures. Do we trust that God is able to overcome these vices, these false teachers in these dark days? Yes, we must trust that God's Word is more powerful, that His Gospel will transform lives. That in Christ we will have the victory. And so, may all of us be encouraged as well. Even though we have gone through dark times and struggles, sometimes it seems like the devil is winning. He's not. He will not go very far. He will strengthen us through his word and through the gospel. Don't be discouraged. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this text. It's a dark text. It shows us the world and its influence, but it also shows how the world can enter into the church and how there are some who are non-believers, some who are false teachers that enter into the church at times. But Lord, we're not to be discouraged because you will prevail. You have given us adequate resources, the Word of God, prayer, the sacraments, as we gather together to worship and to serve and to disciple, we will see the church grow. We will see the health of the church improve. Thank you, Lord, for this reality check. Uh, May we live with the sobriety of understanding these things, but at the same time, the joy and hope and confidence that you are in control and that your word is all-powerful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.